Well, good morning. There we go. You guys are learning. See, this is, uh, makes it more fun for me. Um, I hope you uh, desire what these five men did in ministering to you and for you and into your lives. I hope you aspire to a role like that in your life because it does really make a difference for the kingdom. It really does. Because uh, we need more men to lead today. We do. We need leadership from men. Now, I know the world doesn't tell you that. They tell you you're toxic. You need to step aside. You need to shut your mouth. You need to not share your beliefs. But really, we need godly men in this world. Not ordinary men, godly men. Men who believe and trust God's word. Men who will speak it to the world. Men who will share it and teach it and impart it to their families. Men will be courageous and bold. Men who will stand up when they're pressured to sit down. Men who will step into the challenge of speaking out about their faith. Men who love Jesus with all their heart and will risk their life and their reputation and their money for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the only way you're ever gonna figure out how to do that is by taking a step into leadership in your life. Stop being passive. Stop giving into apathy and take a step into it. Even if it's not perfect, do something about it. There's a lot of stories in the Bible that I thought about sharing with you this morning that I think typify what the beauty of actually masculine, godly, leadership look like. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of, end of the Bible, you, you can read of great stories. But today I picked an, an epic Old Testament story to share with you. It's very, very short, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So first few verses, if you want to go ahead and flip open your Bibles there, open your app and, and uh, turn to those pages, it will help you if you actually see it on a paper. It's a very, very few verses. But as you turn there, I want to set up the moment, okay? Here's the moment. Young David, 15, has been anointed to be the next king of Israel. He has, at this point in his life, actually defeated Goliath. And because of his defeat of Goliath, he was brought into the home of Saul. He left the home of his youth. He then there inside of Saul's home built a relationship with another man. That man's name is Jonathan. Jonathan was 10 years his senior. But there was something about these two men where they had this kindred heart for each other. But during his time there, bipolar King Saul was a little difficult to live with at times. Uh, you never knew where Saul was at any moment in time. There were moments in time he was okay with young David and moments in time he wasn't. Back and forth and back and forth it went until finally, I think David just got tired. And while you think that David quickly took the throne of Israel, he didn't. There was a long decade there where he dealt with all this animosity and all the emotional burden and all the weight of all of his gifting as it met 
with the vicious hatred of King Saul. And I think David finally gets tired, and so he runs for reprieve. He takes a few guys with him, and he goes out to the valley of the En Gedi. I don't know if you've been to Israel or not, but I take groups of people to Israel on trips that I lead. I'm taking one this next year, and usually it's about 40, 50 people or whatnot, but when we make a stop at this place, the En Gedi, it is cool. Because literally you're in the middle of nowhere in the desert, and there's nothing but rocks except right here in the En Gedi. Because in the En Gedi, there is a spring that flows out of the earth there that was moving there at the time of David. It exists there as it existed thousands of years ago. And David has gone to this place, and it's very special because there is a, essentially a spring that is just flowing from rock in the middle of the En Gedi, and it's just gushing water. There's a pool there, and it finds its way down through a stream, and there's a few trees kind of smattered in and out, but it is basically just raw limestone, white everywhere, except gathered around this tiny stream. And as you enter the area, there's an opening down at kind of the end of the stream where the stream dies off. And as you enter this canyon, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of caves. That's the moment we're in right now. Now we read 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, seven verses. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of the En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And if you ask me, that sounds a little bit like overkill, doesn't it? Yeah. 3,000 men of war. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. Remember, there wasn't one cave. There were caves. He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. In essence, he went in to take a deuce. Because if he wanted to take a leak, he could take that anywhere. He's with 3,000 dudes, men of war. There's no shame in just urinating anywhere. So he finds a private cave. And he goes into this cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Funny, isn't it interesting? Of all the caves King Saul would choose to do sin, the VC that he goes to is right there in the cave that David happens to be in, and his men. And they were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Which was a promise, by the way, given to David. And they knew it. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, if you just ask me, that is an odd behavior. <laughs> to crawl up behind a man? Exposed? Deucing? Don't do that. 
not a good idea. There's things in the Bible you should do and should not do. He does it, and he crawls up, and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward, David's heart struck him. So his conscience was stricken because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. Two things, two things for you today that I believe all men need to do as leaders. I like to make things simple because when you make things simple and you do them, they become profound. So today I'm hoping that you'll take these two fundamentals of godly masculine leadership out of this room and you will actually do them. Because David, I believe, was easily one of the most remarkable leaders who ever lived. And this moment right here is indicative of how David behaved most of the time. Not all the time, he wasn't perfect. He had at least a one or two notable failures in his life. But there were many moments, many moments, that he gave us a beautiful example of what leadership looks like and right here, he does just that. And I want you to see it so that you will do it. Because we're going to leave this place, and you are going to be called into a moment of leadership. Here's the first thing you need to know. God's man seeks God's will, not his God's man seeks God's will, not his own. Listen to verse 4 and 5 one more time. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, that you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Quite a fascinating moment, if you ask me, because now I want you to imagine just a moment that you are David. You are David in the flesh. You are exhausted by King Saul. You intentionally remove yourself from his home because you need a reprieve. You take a few men with you out into the middle of nowhere to get away from it. As you are out in the middle of nowhere, you find the En Gedi, you rest there, and you're looking for a reprieve. You want to be away, and you have done what you think God has called you to do. Then you get out in the middle of the desert only to hear soldiers and horses marching your way. An infantry or two or three coming for you. You are back in the cool of a cave in the heat of the day. 
And in this instance, what happens? The army parks outside, and the king of the army comes in to your cave. Please remember, there's not one cave. There are hundreds of them. And not only that, the king of this army that's pursuing you is in a very exposed and vulnerable position. There is a crack of an opportunity here. I don't know why I said that. There is an opportunity here for David to take matters into his own hands. The funny part about the situation is David is with godly men. And good and godly men take a godly promise and twist it toward David. Here is the moment God has given you in which he will give your enemies into your hand, David. And David begins to rationalize God's will toward himself. And we know that he does because he does the preposterous thing of actually crawling up behind this guy. But there's this moment that something strikes his heart. But just, just prior to that, I still want you to imagine you're David. What are you thinking to yourself at that moment? You're thinking to yourself these things. I removed myself from his home. I ran from his presence. I took myself away from him to protect myself and him. I moved into the middle of the desert in the farthest way away place that I could possibly be. I brought a few men with me. I did the right thing. And now they're here, the king of God's army is now in a completely exposed position. I have dealt with this long enough. It's been 10 years. My men want me to be king. The people want me to be king. The women sing my praises. Everybody knows that I am the greatest in this army. Why wait any longer? Yes, I will rationalize toward myself and I will do what I deserve what I have waited long enough for, I will take into my own hands. I actually think there was a split second that David thought that to himself. I truly believe it, because guess what? I would have done the same thing, and so would you. Because when we are put in a predicament in our life where we have to choose between God's will and our will, most of the time, unfortunately, we actually choose our will. And it's the unfortunate truth about us. But that is the poorest choice of leadership. And David is convicted about it, so much so that when he's there ready to take his life with his sword in hand, instead of taking his life, he takes a corner of his robe. And he comes back to do the second thing that great men do when they actually lead when it counts, which is this. They speak God's will and not their own. They speak God's will and not their own. Listen to verse six. David crawls back, and as he does, 
he said this to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. God's man not only seeks God's will, God's man, when he leads, speaks God's will. So David crawls back, untwists the promise that these men have twisted, and speaks it back to him because he understands this. God anointed and appointed Saul. And while God had anointed him the next king of Israel, he had yet to appoint him, and he understood it was not his place to come between the appointment of God of him as the next leader of Israel. So what does he do? He speaks God's will back to them, which by the way, is a very difficult thing for him to do. And let me tell you why. Because by speaking that to them, it not only put his life at risk, it put his men at risk, which put him in a terrible predicament because there are 3,000 men parked outside waiting to take his life. And yet by speaking that will, he speaks back to the enemy of his own heart and leads his men into the opportunity of seeing the leadership of God, who, by the way, is the only leader. But, get this, if you continue reading ahead just a few sentences in the story, you'll discover that David has to walk out of the cave. He walks out of the cave, he confronts the moment, and because he sought God's will and spoke God's will, God became his salvation. He spared his life again. That's what godly leadership looks like. It's that simple, fellas. Seek God's will, not your own. Speak God's will, not your own. Now, what does this look like when you put it to work? What does it actually look like? Here's what it looks like. A number of years ago, my middle son, who's now 22, uh, got his driver's license. Big day for us in the Miller household. Our second son got his driver's license, and I remember we took him down uh, to get his permit, you know, that whole thing. and. And uh, I couldn't take him, so my wife took him, and she snapped a picture of him smiling with his pink slip, and he was all excited, and that happened to be a Thursday, a Thursday. Well, on Friday uh, evening, we had some of his friends over, and they were hanging out at the house, but on Saturday, we intended to take a trip with my daughter's now family, extended part of her family, her boyfriend at the time, and their kids, and his 
uh, her, uh, their, his mom and dad and our family were going to take a trip up north. So their family of five and our family of five on a Saturday morning were going to travel up north. But Grant, my middle child, who just got his permit, had some friends over on Friday night, two buds. And we woke up early on a Saturday morning, tried to wake him up. He was protesting going. He wanted to stay back with his two buds. We said fine. So my family of four and their family of five drove up north together to do some Christmas shopping together and kind of hang out, kind of get to know each other, all right? So it's about two hours away, and I'm driving into town, and we're actually pulling off the freeway, and I'm trying to follow the, the map on my phone, you know, and I get a call from my son, Grant. And I don't know why my kids and my wife always call at the wrong time. I don't know why. But the map goes away because he's calling and I just push that little red X to ignore it really quick because I'm trying to figure out, do I turn left or right? So I ignore the phone call and, and I kind of get my bearings a little bit and then he calls 15 seconds later. Of course, I got to make another quick turn and I don't know which way to go. So I ignore his phone call again, all right? That's twice in a row. I was a little irritated the second time, by the way. And then 15 seconds after that, he calls my wife, who happens to be sitting next to me, right? And, you know, I, I know when something's wrong with my kids because I can tell it through the tone of my wife, right? Because she just has this tone because she does it to me, is why. So most of the time, I'm experiencing it, but I noticed all of a sudden when she picked up the phone, like her tone and demeanor and posture and everything just kind of changed. And this is exactly what happened, precisely. Where are you? Pause, and I'm kind of trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? What happened? And the next words are, hand the phone to the police officer. <laughs> and so I begin to kind of pick up on the conversation, and, and here's, here's, what's, here's what's happened. So my son, who just got his permit essentially two days before, decided to take my brand new Ford F-150 Super Crew out for a drive to get some breakfast with his two butts. So I went up in my drawer and found my keys and took the truck up to this fast food restaurant. Driving it home, he totaled it. I've only made one payment on this truck, by the way, all right? So he totaled it. Beautiful truck, totally gone, right? It's funny now, kind of a little bit, but it wasn't funny at the moment, I want you to know. It was, it was an awful experience because now we're trying to drive into this town with this family we're trying to impress. We're trying to put on a good show just like they are, right? And now we got to get out and we got to explain to them what's going on. We drop our kids off with them because we're bad parents and we make our way home. So we're making our way home and, and no kidding, everything just starts to hit me and my wife and we start to have these conversations about what to do, what are we gonna do, what's gonna happen, how are we gonna handle it. So about 15 minutes into the drive, I called my insurance guy, because he's a friend, his name's Jeremy, get him on the phone. And this is literally what I did, it's kind of embarrassing, but I, I called him on a cell phone and because we're friends, I just said, hey Jeremy, sorry to bother you on a Saturday, I have a hypothetical situation for you. <laughs> I just said that. <laughs> I said, so, so imagine you have a kid who doesn't have anything but maybe his permit and he takes the car out and you never put him on the insurance. And I said, what happens if he like dings it or wrecks it or something like that? And, 
And he goes, he laughs. <laughs> just like you just did. <laughs> and he says, well, I, would just, I wouldn't bother turning that into your insurance. There's no way they're going to pay for it. And he kind of giggles about it. And I go, oh. I says, okay, well, uh, have a great Saturday. We'll talk to you later. I hung up the phone. <laughs> and then I looked over at my wife with this blank stare. And I'm like, I don't know what to do about this situation. I made one payment on a $55,000 truck. And by the way, he hit an electrical pole, brought two electrical poles down that cost $30,000, by the way, to fix. That turned off the power at both Walmart and Target, by the way. <laughs> Why are you applauding about that? <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I'm kind of coming down from this, this, you know, through all these various emotions over two hours, and I'm grateful I had two hours to kind of process that, right? And uh, we're making our way home, and sure enough, we kind of get close to, we're about a block from home, because he hadn't driven that far, he wasn't going that fast, no one was hurt, but he came around a corner, and Minnesota can be icy in the winter, he hit a patch of ice, and sure enough, he slammed a truck into an electrical pole, and he hit it, the actual front end, so hard that it removed the electrical pole, of course, but the, it, the truck was actually gripping the electrical pole and holding it up, right? For the next two days, everybody drove by and saw this truck wrapped around this pole, right? <laughs> So, you know, anyway, uh, we, we pull up in, into, the, into the house, and uh, we come in the garage, and all the lights are off in the house, which is strange, but as soon as we open up the garage, there he is standing in the doorway waiting to greet us, and, and he is in a devastated state, okay? His, he's been crying and weeping. His face is swollen. He knows that he's done something wrong. And we walk up the stairs together, and we sit down at the, the kitchen table. So he sits down, wife sits down, I sit down, there's barely a light on in the house, it's dark, and uh, this happens, okay? So my wife sits down, crosses her arms like this, and says, son, listen up. Your dad has something he wants to say. <laughs> Which I didn't know I had something that I wanted to say, but... Uh, but I did, and I said about four or five things to him. So here are the four or five things that I said to my son. I said, number one, you just experienced the law of first choice. When you make one choice, you get to make all the other choices that go with that first choice. You took my truck, you totaled it, you got a ticket, you're not gonna get your driver's license, my insurance is gonna go up, I'm grateful that you didn't make a couple of choices, though. Number one, you didn't kill anybody. And number two, you didn't hurt yourself. But now you gotta deal with the consequences of all these choices. Do you understand? And I said, look at me. And he had to peel his eyes open to look at me, but he looked at me and he said, yes, I understand. I said, number two, when one man suffers or sins, sometimes other people unfairly suffer. And there's no such thing as unfair suffering, by the way, just so you know, but that's what I said to him. Because I want him to understand that sometimes the consequences of his sin affect and hurt other people. And I said to him, 
You sinned, and now our family's going to suffer financially because I ain't got $55,000 sitting around and another 30 to pay for things I'm never going to see for the rest of my life. That's unfair to me. And that puts our house at risk and our finances at risk. And it's not just me that's going to be upset about this. It's going to be your sister and your other brother too and the extended family, and I don't know what to do about that. Number three, I need you to do something for me. I need you to go down to your room and pray because I don't know what to do about this situation. I don't have an answer, and I wish I could give you one right now. Can you go down to your room and pray? And he said, yes. And dad, I'll pay you back. And I said, you don't have enough money <laughs> working minimum wage for the next 20 years to pay me back for this thing. I said, I just need you to pray because we need God's intervention. Number four, I hope that this moment drives you to Jesus Christ and awakens you to the reality of God because we all as men have these moments in our life and they're opportunities to know the Almighty God. Do you understand? And he said yes. And then he walked down to his room quietly. Me and my wife then went into the living room where there was a TV. We sat in the dark. We never turned the TV on. And I don't know if you've had one of these moments in life, one of those somber moments when you just don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to think. You're just in a dark, dark place, and you're very confused about how to take a next step. Well, that's where we were. The next 30 minutes, we just sat there, said nothing, and looked at a blank screen on a TV. And then all of a sudden, this happens. The power grid goes down because of the pole that my son hit. <laughs> it, literally, you could hear the buzzing stop. It went And people came out of their houses. They're like, what's going on? Is there a war? The apocalypse? Rapture? You know, I mean, you could hear people talking in the street. It was that quiet. I mean, it's crazy. We're in the middle of Metropolis. All of a sudden, it's quiet. But as soon as the power grid went out, my son realized that it was his fault. And this is what we heard from the basement. It went something like this. Oh! And me and my wife giggled. <laughs> because, <laughs> because we knew that he understood that that was his fault. And that gave us some form of peace. Okay. The story gets more complicated. Because one year before that, one year before that, about 10 days off, one year before that, on Christmas Eve, I was driving across I-90, which is one of those major interstates that go all the way across the US. I was coming from South Dakota to Minnesota. I was driving about 75, going down the freeway, and I hit a patch of ice. My truck was in cruise control, which is not a good thing for ice, and the back tire began to spin. I spun out of control. I hit a guardrail going 75 at least, and I hit it so hard, it 
catapulted my rear axle into a farmer's land. We flew, me and my daughter in the front seat, flew about 30 yards in the air, rolled down an embankment onto some railroad tracks three times. Get this, we hit so hard in that truck that our shoes came off our feet. They were tied on their feet. That's how hard we hit. I'm not gonna go into all the details, but it was Christmas Eve in Minnesota, midnight in the winter, so it's sub-zero. I had to crawl out of, the window, out of the window onto the interstate of which no one was driving pitch black and try to get a car to stop. It was hard to get a car to stop because they couldn't see us. And after about 10 minutes of standing on cold earth without shoes on, finally someone stopped. The police came out, the ambulance came out, and everybody was shocked that we were alive. We were alive. And yet the only thing that happened on that day was my daughter got a piece of glass in her ankle that the ambulance and the emergency medical service had to remove from her ankle. And essentially we were fine. I was sore for a week, by the way. Incredible pain. Incredible. But guess what? Because of that accident and that other Ford F-150 supercrew, my insurance company was suing me. They paid me for everything except for the $2,500 it cost to remove that glass from my daughter's ankle. So I had to go to arbitration. So that happens before the second one. So guess what? Before we ever get into this other situation with my son resolved, I am now sitting in arbitration one day. And my insurance company is eviscerating me in this arbitration. I mean, they are just letting me have it, and I feel like a loser. I'm like, this is an awful experience, and I still don't know what's gonna happen with the other situation. I'm sitting in this arbitration, and I'm losing. I feel like I'm losing, and I get a call from my insurance company on the phone. Just like when my son called me. I look down at it, they're calling. Boop, hit the red X, can't talk. I'm, you're, you're suing me right now, for God's sake. They call back again. Boom, hit it again, ignore it again. I'm like, so no kidding, I walk out of arbitration. I'm pretty, pretty convinced that I've lost. But I pick up the phone, and the insurance company says this to me. Mr. Miller, we've decided to treat your son as an insured motorist. We're going to pay your entire bill. I actually didn't believe it, by the way, at the moment, because I had not seen the check. I wanted those two checks. Right? I wanted that $55,000 check and I want that $30,000 check. But it did come in the mail a few months later. Incredible. Paid off the whole thing. That's miracle number one. Miracle number two is this. Miracle number two is this. No kidding, my son got a ticket. It was absolved. I didn't even really want to ask, but my friend across the street is a sheriff, and I said, can you please check on this? And he says, yep, it's been dissolved. Which meant that he could get his driver's license when he turned 16, which I allowed him to do for some reason. I don't understand why, <laughs> but I allowed him to do that. That's three miracles in a row over a very short period of time. Number four is this. The strangest thing, I still don't understand it today, but our insurance never went up. In fact, over the last, ne last next five years, it went down every year. Every single year. You want to know who my insurance company is, don't you, right? Now? 
went down every stinking year. On top of that, a few weeks later, I discover I won the arbitration. Crazy stuff now. We're talking crazy kind of stuff. It gets even better than that, even better. There's the moment that God begins to answer all these prayers that we've been praying about for a very long time. My son comes upstairs one day, and he says this to me. Dad, at that table that day, when you were speaking those words to me, and you said this, let's pray together and see if God is real because you don't know what to do, that was the moment that I finally believed in the God that you've been telling me about forever. I saw the way you trusted God. And because you didn't eviscerate me like every other father would, you didn't give me a face banking, you didn't tell me to pay it all back, you told me to pray and to trust in God, the way that you were going to pray with God too, I saw God work. And I believe that our God, our God, can do anything. And that story became his entrance exam into college. How about that? Yeah. But get this. But get this. None of that happens if I am not the leader that God has called me to be. I could have sought my own will and spoke my own will in that moment. And I don't have a lot of these great moments. This is one of very few great moments in my life, but I will tell you this. I learned the lesson of what David did here. By seeking God's will and speaking God's will into that moment, I got to see God work. Because guess what? I wasn't in God's way any longer, trying to insert and impart my will on that moment, trying to get my own way. Thus, I handed it over to God's will, and God provided in a miraculous way, which makes me wonder to myself if we don't see great miracles from God because we're always inserting our will over God's will. Amen. There it is. And if you want to see God work miracles in your life, start leading like a man of God. Amen. Seek his will and speak his will into those moments and stop worrying about what your will is. Leadership and leading like a man today is not to lead like the world leads. Don't be even convinced by good men who are persuading you with God's promises to do it any other way. That's why David was such a surgical, fantastic, godly leader in most moments in his life is because he could discern in those moments the razor-sharp edge of God's will, and he sought after his heart. And I want you to know this. I keep saying that to you this weekend. I want you to know what this means. And I want you to experience these miracles in your life, but you're never going to experience them for yourself or for your family or for your wife or your friends or your church or your brothers if you don't start doing these things. Very simply, it's just this. Seek God's will and speak his will, and you will see God. 
I'm going to invite our worship team up, and I'm going to pray for you guys. God, we are about to celebrate you because we believe 100% that you do wonderful, great things. God, I just want to pray that you would overwhelm us right now with the reality of your spoken and real will. That God, in the confines of our heart, as we sing to your name, as we praise you, we will not only let down our will, but you'll disclose yours to us. Because God, we're about to go back to our places of business, to our homes, to our families, to our neighborhoods, our friends and our churches. And God, godly men are needed. Godly men are needed. I'm gonna pray, God, even right now that each and every one of these men here would hear you speak and respond to your will. Hear you speak and respond to your will. I know over this weekend you have been speaking, but you have laid a word or a thought or a conviction on their heart, and I pray that they will carry that one thing forward into their lives. God, that you will use it to affect those around you and that they see the working of you, the great and holy God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.